For so many modern-driven women, life is about being more than one thing. We're multidimensional, and so are our conversations. We carry multiple identities. We can be both mother and artist, both attorney and entrepreneur, both clinician and CEO, both humble and proud. Life for women like us is about both, about all of the above. It's about the and. Our stories are the stories of so many of you. We wanted the freedom and flexibility to live life on our own terms, and we felt the pull to be more present with our families. But we still felt drawn to contribute, to build, and to create. And we wanted to establish financial security for ourselves and our children. For us, that looked like founding software companies, but for you, that may look different. Our mission is to help other smart, conscious women build and grow businesses on the internet. Starting up online can be overwhelming and isolating, but it doesn't need to be. Join us for honest conversations about what it really means to grow an online business that aligns with your values and adds something meaningful to the world. I'm Sandy Connery. And I'm Jenny Barcelos. And you're listening to the And She Spoke podcast. In our business, we're big fans of financial literacy and accountability. Knowing your numbers is an essential aspect of building a successful business and inherent responsibility for any entrepreneur. We also believe that what you focus on grows. So pay attention to your money. How do we stay up to speed on our numbers? We use Bench for our bookkeeping. It's simple, elegant, and saves us so many hours that would otherwise be spent neck deep in receipts on the other side of a spreadsheet. Each month, our transactions are automatically imported into Bench, and we get on-demand financial reports. We even enjoy opening up our profit and loss statement to review each month. And when tax time comes around, we are up to date and ready to go. And this is what financial empowerment feels like. Head on over to anshe.co slash bench to save 20% off your Bench accounting plan for the first six months. Welcome to another episode of the And She Spoke podcast. Today, we chatted with Melinda Brianna Epler, the CEO of Change Catalyst. Melinda is an award-winning documentary filmmaker who now works with tech firms and venture capital firms to solve diversity and inclusion in the tech industry. So needless to say, we had a lot to talk to her about. Using her background in storytelling, behavior science, and large-scale culture change, she is a strategic advisor for many companies, innovation hubs, and governments around the world. More than ever, our world is shaped by technology, and it is crucial that technology is dreamt up and created by more than one demographic. And that's why Melinda's work is so important and so necessary. We talked all things tech, venture capital, and motorbikes. Here's the conversation with Melinda Brianna Epler. Well, welcome, Melinda, to the show. We're thrilled to have you. Awesome. Great to be here. So we were just chatting before we hit record about all the joys of running a software company. So please, can you share with our audience what you do and your relationship to tech? I am the founder and CEO of Change Catalyst, and we work on inclusive innovation globally. And most of our work is focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion in the tech industry, and then kind of tech-adjacent tech fields and it has kind of kind of moved outside of tech since you know, over the last couple of years. We really started in the tech industry because there was such a lack of diversity and inclusion and equity, and it has such a powerful effect on the world. And, and so it's, it's very dangerous that that's the case. And so my, my co-founder and husband, Wayne, and I really 
wanted to address that across the industry. We started with really bringing people together to focus on solutions for diversity, equity, and inclusion through our Tech Inclusion Conference. And then we kept doing that across the U.S. and around the world, and then also have done other events and, and a lot of consulting and training and now some, some executive coaching and really leadership training on how to build more diverse, equitable, and inclusive companies and, and the role that leaders have to play in that. And Melinda, what is the size, the average size of a company that you work with? We actually work with different companies with different sizes from startups all the way through like 60 to 100,000 people. And they're just, the work just kind of scales differently depending on who we're working with. With with startups, we, we often work with VCs and accelerators to help them develop more diverse and inclusive programs and also to help their startups to develop more diverse, equitable, inclusive companies from the beginning, right? So then the next wave of companies doesn't have the same problems with this that they currently do. And and then with the bigger, bigger companies, we're really working with executive teams, leadership teams, and diversity, equity, and inclusion teams around the, the learning and development and growth and change that needs to happen. I'm curious to hear about your work with accelerators and those brand new startups. Do you come in and speak to cohorts within accelerators? And if so, kind of what is the message that you share with them? Yeah, yeah, actually we do. Our work in that realm is, is kind of a couple of different things. One is to help diversify the programs of accelerators or, or portfolios for VCs and help them figure out how to do that effectively and also hopefully work on inclusion as well, really creating an inclusive program. And then also working with startups. And so that often looks like one workshop or a series of workshops where we're working with the startups to really progress them forward in terms of their learning and understanding of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and then the practical things they could do to really embed that early on in their companies. So can you give some examples of what those practices would be for early startups and early companies? Because we have an audience of entrepreneurs, mostly solopreneurs, but many are interested in sort of growing into bigger teams. Yeah. Often we hear that, you know, we're a startup, we can't focus on diversity, equity, inclusion right now. Um, You know, we'll deal with that later on. But the reality is you have to do it with ASAP at the very beginning. Like, who is your founding team? What does your founding team look like? If you're a solopreneur, you still have the ability to impact, usually have supply chain, even when you're small, right? So how are you really making those decisions around your supply chain in a way that's equitable and, and looking at who you're hiring as contractors? All that makes a difference in in terms of your own impact in the world and also the impact that people have on your product that you're growing as well. So diversify your team from the start, you know, diversify your founding team if you can, and your board certainly, because do that soon, early, because once the board kind of gets established, it's really hard to work on diversity with board tenure. You know, you basically can't can't replace somebody until they leave, right? And, and so, so doing it early and and it also just has such an impact on your company when you do, as well as impact on wealth, assuming your your startup is going to do well. And then the other things to think about are, you know, even we're a small team and and we have thought through our onboarding and how do we how do you onboard somebody when they come into your company and what does that look like? How is that inclusive? Once you offer benefits, what are the benefits look like? Are those inclusive? 
you know, how are you helping people develop and grow as leaders? They continue to, to grow as leaders as you grow. All of those things are really important for startups. So I just have to, I know Sandy's like itching to ask you a question, but I was like, I'm going to have so many things to say to Melinda and ask, ask you. So just one more, and then I'll go Sandy a turn. I would love to hear your perspective on what's happening with Basecamp right now. And I imagine that you have an opinion on that. And it's just kind of, we're recording this at the time that things have kind of blown up there. And so I'm just wondering, what's your take on that? I think there's a lot of privilege in saying that you can't talk about politics at work and that politics is often a very coded term for what's going on in your life, right? Diversity, equity, inclusion, oppression, racism, sexism, ableism, anti-Muslim sentiment, all all of these things that uh, anti-Asian hate, all of these things are not politics. It's my life, right? And, And so by saying we're not going to talk about it, we're saying cover that up when you come to work, cover your identity when you come to work. And as we know that has an impact on, because that's an extra added burden that some people have to take to work with them. And on top of their daily work, it also means that you're not actually dealing with the mental health aspect of what people go through in their daily lives and you're kind of covering that up as well. And it's lazy, I think also, because you that means you're not really doing the work to build a culture that is safe. It's hard to create psychological safety and so that you can have those conversations and to say, well, we're just not going to bother doing that and not bother developing that psychological safety. It's lazy, but also just not fair, not equitable, and really is harmful. Private equity firms, venture capital firms reach out to us a lot. And occasionally we will take the call and chat with them. And inevitably they have no female founded companies and certainly not like women of color founded companies Mm or Mm -hmm. people of color at all. How do you come into a venture capital and try to encourage them to diversify the portfolio? And is it true that there just aren't those companies out there? Or is that just what they say? It's not true. A lot of the the problem, how we got here kind of in the tech industry, just in general, is that people have networks of people that look like them. And so, you know, it's how these big tech companies also are lacking diversity is because usually founded by a young white man who's fairly privileged and well-educated in a Stanford or Berkeley or MIT, or they had the ability to develop a startup with, so they had the runway, they had the income, they had the the money to be able to do that. And then they started to hire their friends. And then people in their company kept hiring people that look like them, kept hiring people like them. And suddenly you have thousands of people that all are very similar because there was no deliberate action to diversify network and hold each other accountable for doing that. So it's, it's the same thing in VC. And actually a lot of VCs are a product of the tech companies that you know, hire people like them. And so VCs look very much like the rest of the tech industry. There's work that needs to be done to diversify your network. And so if you're not seeing founders with underrepresented identities, it means you're not looking outside of your network far enough. And also there is now this historical problem in the tech industry where investors have not invested in founders with underrepresented identities. So 
you're, you're going to see less of them because they're, especially if you're looking at later stage founders, because nobody invested in them in the beginning, right? So they may be out there, they may be out there and just generating their own revenue and doing just fine without you. But the, the reality is that, that there's been this inequity for so long in the industry that depending on what stage you're looking at, you may be coming across this systemic problem in the industry. Looking earlier stage, supporting founders with underrepresented identities sooner, earlier, and then helping support along the way so that they, you know, when they get to a series A, they're still being supported and there's there's a lack of investment opportunities at that point. So investors need to watch out for that and look for opportunities to invest at that stage as well. And when you bring these ideas into the VC world and into the startup world, how is it received? Do you feel like people are sort of just humoring you and paying lip service to this? Or do you feel like there's really a movement or a cultural shift to acknowledging that this is a weakness in the system? There's some of both out there, right? It's not all one or the other. There's definitely a shift that happened kind of across the world <laughs> in every industry and, and certainly in tech as well over the last year after George Floyd was murdered. And there was such a focus on Black Lives Matter and really the need to need for change. There's definitely a shift. And I would also say some people are leading that shift and pushing forward and others, other folks are still kind of, yeah, we're, it's the, you know, clearly we're supposed to do this. And rather than this is what I want to do, which is that's the motivation for change, right? Not we should do this. That's you don't stop smoking because you should stop smoking. You stop smoking because I want to stop smoking, right? It, you know, it's, it's, all around behavior change means the motivation is really crucial. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of folks that are still just kind of playing lip service to it, still not really going deep into it yet, or not really setting aside the funds to make that change happen because change takes funding, it takes time, it takes real effort. And there are some that are really genuinely interested in creating change. In the VC world, I would say that there are just aren't isn't a lot yet that's really some focus on the portfolio and kind of portfolio diversity, but I would say not a lot of reflection and change internally in venture capital firms yet, where that's a big piece of the problem is that they haven't dismantled the systems of VC internally and really looked at, well, how are we building our own culture as our own at our own firm and diversifying our own teams and looking at how we're investigating our ourselves and how we might be harboring biases, microaggressions, et cetera, and really working to change individually as well. There's a lot of outward kind of, I'm going to give to this program. I'm going to, you know, we need to, to focus more on portfolio diversity, which are great. And the work also needs to be done internally. I'm not seeing a lot of that yet. Do you think that the companies, when venture capital are looking at companies to add to their portfolio, do you think that they're held to the same standards as a 20-something white male founded company? They're held usually held to higher standards, right? Because we take more chances on people that, and we take risks on people that are like us and that we identify with and, and tend to take less risks on people that we don't. And so generally speaking, people with underrepresented identities are being held to higher standards and being asked to jump through more hoops and 
and prove themselves more. Yeah. I mean, we, we have our own lived experience that we don't need to get into in this episode. And it's like, it's a story for another day when we're through this period of our business and in our lives, but it's just, if you've not experienced it, it's hard to describe. I think like we all have this general, I think a lot of people have this general sense that like tech is not diverse and that, you know, there's like certain people who have more power than they should. This like very general sense of that. But when having come from other industries, Sandy and I both had other careers prior to starting a software company together, it's very dramatic, the level of bias compared to anything that I've ever touched in my life. Like it's, it's profound. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It started out my career in the film industry, but <laughs> it's another level, you know, there's some similarities. It's a very, in addition to the lack of diversity and equity and all of that, there's also sexualization and sexualized environment on top of it, which is mm-hmm. the only other industry I would say is that there's a lot to lot to be done there. Tech is there's such an impact for both industries on the world and how we see each other, how we interact with each other, and and such a need for really fundamentally investigating and creating that change in both industries. Can you tell us the story how you went from being a filmmaker to doing DEI work with technology companies? Not a logical path. <laughs> it's just in my mind, but no. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so I, you know, I was working in the the film industry as a documentary filmmaker mostly. I also worked on some mainstream films and television. The why I was working in that industry was to create social and environmental change. So really, you know, so social impact was still kind of core to my was core to my work, and using the the power of storytelling to really create change. And I realized at one point that I was in an industry that. It was very hard to change from within that industry that that I was constantly struggling to make an impact, to make sure that the documentary films that I worked on had that social impact component to them and that that it wasn't lost within the the story of, you know, I I realized that that industry is really so geared toward making money that even the social impact documentaries often end up being less impactful as a result of that. And so I was constantly struggling, constantly fighting every day, fighting to make sure that the films that I was working on still had that component in it. And it was really negatively affecting my health and, and well-being. And that industry, the, the norm is to work at least 12 hour days, seven, six to seven days a week. And then on top of that, a lot of times we're being asked to do more than that. And, and so your, your health, and then on top, in any your struggle as well, it took a toll literally on my health. And also I was being harassed daily and realized at one point, you know, I got to take a break. I took a break. My ex-husband and I went to the wine country and lived off the land for a year. <laughs> and uh, and while, while doing that, started a blog and, became a really popular sustainability blogger at the time. And I realized that I was reaching more people with one blog post that I wrote for a couple of, you know, spent a couple hours writing than I was reaching with a lot of the documentary films that I worked on for nine months. Right. And so I I realized that there's more to this, that that I could create change without working on 
nine months is kind of minimum for a documentary. It's usually no harassment. Yeah, yeah, or sorry, that. <laughs> da, da, da. Um, and, and so I did that. It, you know, I, I, I realized I still kind of took my storytelling and behavior change strategies and, and organizational change management strategies and, and started working with NGOs and social entrepreneurs and then Fortune 500 companies that were doing social impact campaigns and really used the power of storytelling to, to, to create change in that way. Did that for a number of years as a consultant and then was hired into a one of my clients kind of made me an offer I couldn't refuse. And and so I left, shut down my consultancy and moved from Seattle, where I was at the time, to San Francisco to an engineering firm and really used was the, the chief experience officer, so was the head of marketing and culture. And I also was leading the a new behavior change component of our work where we were working worked with large-scale healthcare entities to develop behavior change strategies around sustainability, energy, waste, water, and, and social impact focused programs. And worked on a big healthcare campaign in the healthcare industry and also worked with these, these large medical systems on creating change. But also found that I didn't think it was possible, but it was the worst experience of my life professionally. It was even worse than the film industry in a lot of ways. There was some harassment, but it was mostly, it was a lot of little, little microaggressions, little things that kind of, I was the only woman in a leadership team of 19 and it just wasn't set up for my well-being, my success, my well-being. And it was kind of a big aha moment for me. It was here I am at the kind of near the top at the top. And it is, I'm doing so much work in social impact and creating change in the world. And if we can't get diverse leadership, we diverse people aren't leading our companies, our countries, then, you know, things are never really going to fundamentally change. And so I left to start Change Catalyst to really address change across the tech industry to make sure that I'm having an impact in a global way on the tech industry and really focusing on, on creating inclusive innovation. That was my long, circuitous story to get where I am. Yeah. It's fascinating to see how someone can start in one industry and just wind their way into a totally different, but there's the threads of like the common threads mm-hmm. are still still through there. And exactly. your husband, did you say your husband is your partner? Yes. Yes. Did he come from the tech industry? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's a serial entrepreneur and has been in the tech industry a long time. He's uh, had several startup programs, led several startup programs. And yeah. Hmm. Well, I have not met anyone else whose path so closely resembles mine in terms of mm. like what you're committed to and what you experience. So I, this, it's such a lovely story to hear because I came from human rights law and climate change work as well into tech for really s- similar reasons, not because I ever worked at a startup but be, or a tech company, but because I felt like this is where society is really being created at the root level, like the future we're living into is being made by this tiny group of people. And if you want to impact change and create change in the world, like go start something here in this space. And the law is so archaic and outdated. And also I had a lot of health challenges and just personal kind of breakdowns from working abroad and in human rights. I mean, it's like a very emotionally challenging experience. So anyway, that's such a, a lovely journey that you've been on, but you're taking sort of these painful experiences and turning them into something beautiful and powerful. But I, I did notice when we were researching you that you have 
pictures of yourself on motorcycles all over your Instagram feed. And so I also <laughs> want to hear about that side of how, how, what, what's going on with that? Like, how do you weave that into your, to your life? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, several different ways. It actually does kind of align in lots of interesting ways. Um, like many girls, I grew up thinking that motorcycles are not, you know, it's supposed to, you're supposed to stay far away from motorcycles. Right. So then I met a man, <laughs> Um, I met Wayne and he had a motorcycle at the time and rode on the back of his. And at a certain point, I realized I didn't want to ride on the back anymore. So I <laughs> love it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I got a motorcycle license and it's been four years or so riding. Yeah. Got my motorcycle license and then we got mounting motorcycles. And I will say that it has been life-changing in many ways. We get out of the city a lot more and into nature a lot more. And there's just something, I meditate every day, but there's something really meditative and, and different about being on a motorcycle. And I love it. And also we'll say that um, before, before the pandemic hit, we were doing group rides and our group rides don't look like other group rides for on motorcycles, very diverse community of riders that we kind of pulled ended up pulling together because that that kind of perception of who is a motorcycle rider is you know the motorcycle industry has the same issues around diversity equity and inclusion right and so it's everywhere yeah Wayne and I are ambassadors for Revit which is a big motorcycle gear brand which is cool That's so cool that, it's um, so cool <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> I love it. I love it. I really love it. It brings me joy. Yeah, I bet. You know, it's so interesting how you've sort of woven it into your brand. I think that that was like, it was surprising to see that and you, it really makes your brand stand out. And I, I wondered how conscious of a decision that was on your part. I started kind of on Instagram, just kind of posting what non-work related stuff mostly just because that, oh, that was like my one faith to remember that there's more than work in my life and, you know, that we're all multidimensional and then just kind of owned it, realized that, you know, it is a core piece of who I am and an important piece. And that's the diversity, equity, and inclusion can be really, the work can be really toxic. And, and so it is important to regenerate and find these ways for you to regenerate. And this is you know one of my modes of regeneration. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I think that leads us pretty well into the joy and hustle. So Belinda, if you want to share with our listeners something that's bringing you joy in your life right now, could be motorcycles and a tool that can help our listeners hustle in their career or business. Well, let me start with a tool first. And I would say that Evernote is my tool. I used to take notes in a notebook, in a paper notebook. And then sometimes like I would leave my notebook somewhere and my notes are gone or you know, you spill water on it or you, you drop it in the ocean or whatever it is. And, and then they also kind of end and they're, they're not searchable. So Evernote is definitely my tool that I use all the time. And then you can copy and paste it into other tools or whatever, but Evernote, there's so many different, different tools I use, but that one is one that I would have a hard time not using. I also would say the bridge between the hustle and the joy maybe is that Insight Timer is my kind of meditation app, and I've used it for you know, since 2015, 2000, no, even longer, 2012, and it has changed so much, but it's such a great meditation app, so I highly recommend it for anybody who's kind of thinking about it. There's lots of 
opportunities to learn lots of recorded and live sessions now too to kind of investigate what kind of meditation is right for you and and then it's good timer i use it for timer mostly enjoy yeah yeah in terms of joy definitely i was going to say motorcycle riding since we've talked about that a little bit i would also say that nature getting out into nature is really important i didn't really realize that until sheltered in place now i've you know tried over the last year to bring nature to me we have we didn't have many plants before but now we have like a lot. I noticed, a lot see, I noticed them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's, there's, these are just a fraction of the many plants that we have now in our house. Brought a lot of nature inside, but still need that fresh air, need that greenery, need to step on the earth. All these things are really important to you. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. So I know that everyone's going to be heading over to your Instagram, which is at Change Catalyst to check out all the motorcycle pictures, but where else can they find you if they want to learn more about your business? I have a weekly show, which is a, a we record live and then have a podcast, which is changecatalyst.co slash allyship series, or you can go to changecatalyst.co and you'll find it there. That's a, that's a good way to find me. And you can also find me on LinkedIn and Twitter and yeah, on Instagram, all the places, yeah, all places on, on Apple, Apple podcasts and all those to you. Awesome. Melinda, it's such a pleasure getting to know you. Thank you for spending this half hour with us. Yeah, likewise, likewise. Thank you, Melinda.